Hey everybody, it's Brett. I have a quick message before we start our last episode of 2022. We've been thrilled by the response to the Revealer podcast, and we'd love to keep growing. One thing that really helps is online reviews, so we'd love it if you could take one minute to rate us or write a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And while you're there, if you haven't already, take a look at our catalog of 31 episodes so far. We've covered everything from religion in the CIA and faith-based prisons to Hasidic Jewish heretics and American converts to the Russian Orthodox Church. So big thanks for listening. We'll be very appreciative if you can give us a rating online. Okay, on to our newest episode, Religion and the Corporate Space Race. You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the corporate space race and what religion has to do with it. Why are billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos invested in colonizing space, the moon, and Mars? What do religious teachings have to say about our relationship to outer space? And how might various indigenous religious traditions offer insights that could help us engage in space exploration and preserving this planet differently? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Mary Jane Rubenstein. She is the author of the new book called Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. You can read a review of her book in the upcoming December issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. And you can read her excellent Revealer article from 2021, The New Corporate Space Race, A Colonial Remix, also at therevealer.org. Hi, MJ. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hey there, Brett. I'm very well. How are you? Great. Thank you. So I have to say first that I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. The writing style is conversational and accessible. And I'll say to listeners who feel like they maybe don't have a background in science or religion, that they will still find this book very inviting. It's clear. I really like how you weave in personal stories and family stories and issues from pop culture and politics. It's a it's a great book that I'm excited to get to chat with you about. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of course. So to start us out, I'd like to begin with a rather broad question before we delve into the specifics of the corporate space race. And that is, why do you think space, outer space, enchants so many people? You mentioned in your book that it doesn't really matter which political party is in power because money will be going to space exploration and few people seem to complain about it. So what is it about space that captivates and what do you make of that as someone who studies both religion and science? I think there are a lot of ways to answer that question. There are some big motivators for space, and it kind of depends on who you are. Historically, politically, say in the history of the 20th century, 
space has been understood as like the final frontier mm -hmm. as a place that we can expand and finally magnify the glory of the nation state or something mm -hmm. like that the mm -hmm. conquering nation state it's 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 more it's a promise of more land of more territory there's of course the scientific promise of discovering stuff that we mm -hmm. don't know about on earth so there's the intellectual curiosity um increasingly there seems to be an economic promise in space there may be gold in those hills right there's mm -hmm. like there's a reason mm -hmm. to go out there and open a new economy in space um and i'm used to talking about these different reasons what what i think really shocked me was just one morning it was a totally ordinary morning and i was getting ready i was going to give a uh, talk with our, our planetary science seminar i teach at wesleyan university in connecticut and um, the planetary scientists had invited me to come talk about the space race mm -hmm. and i was thinking like how am i going to make myself intelligible to these humans who are wondering why is somebody with training in religion talking about space yes. why yes. is this person here I'm trying to think of like how I'm going to get them interested in religion. And I thought, well, like, why am I interested in space? Why don't mm. we go for it? That, like, why am I mm. interested in space? I sure. don't want national glory. I don't want money in space <laughs> and I don't want to move there. So like, <laughs> what is it for me? And as I was like puzzling over this, I happened also to be trying to get my four-year-old ready for, for school. And I, you know, marched him into his room. And, and as I marched him into his room, I walked over this like gorgeous blue and white, star rug that we had gotten him. It just it has stars on it and it's mm -hmm. stunning. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at his little pajamas, the ones I was about to take off him and they were constellation pajamas. <laughs> and I looked at the shirt I was about to put him in and it was like a, a, a rainbow camel in on the moon or something like that. Uh -huh. And then, and he had, he hadn't quite put away his toy, which was this enormous rocket ship with it. Like, and, mm -hmm. and, and I wish that I were exaggerating. Here. It's just like, <laughs> I looked around his little room and I was like, Oh my gosh, all of this is space stuff. And because I know how things work, I realized it's, he didn't buy himself this stuff. Like yes. I bought him this stuff. I decided I'm not going to get him the dinosaur lunchbox. I'm going to mm -hmm. get him a space lunchbox. I'm going to get a space backpack. Like, what is it? And I thought, like, well, there's a key in that realization that I got all this stuff for my kid. Like, mm. there's something about the values of space that I not only value, but I want him to value. I want him to learn to love space. I'm like, why? I swear, this was like a huge extent. I was like, why am I teaching him to love space? What is yeah. it about space? Yeah. And I think that it's for me the promise of difference of doing things differently right hmm. since we began wondering about other planets about other solar systems we wonder like are there like totally different kinds of civilizations are there totally different kinds of ways to live um there seems to be this promise of imagination of difference of doing things otherwise that space holds open at least for me um hmm. and this seems to be the value that i'm trying to instill in him when i get him all the space crap <laughs> That's helpful. Thank you. So with that, then, I'd like to make sure everyone listening knows what we mean when we talk about the corporate space race, and then also have you start to share some of its connections to religion. You write in the book's preface, and then throughout the book, really, about people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but also the US government and other entities. And you say that, quote, the escalating effort to colonize the cosmos is a renewal of the 
religious, political, economic, and scientific cooperation that globalized Earth beginning in the 15th century. In other words, the new space race isn't just rehashing mythological themes, it's rehashing Christian themes. So with that, first, what is the corporate space race? Start there. And then what do you mean when you say this new space race is rehashing Christian themes? What are the Christian ideas that drive some of this? When I talk about the corporate space race, I am referring to a process that on the one hand, has escalated in the last 10 or 12 years to such an extent that we can really call it the corporate space race. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got actual corporate entities, charismatic figures, um, whom some people call the astropreneurs, sort of competing, (laughs) jockeying to be the Mm -hmm. the guys who finally get us into space, right? Um, Us on a large scale. That, though, it's it's not, though, the case that it's just like 12 years ago that suddenly corporations became mm. interested in space. Mm. Since the dawn of space exploration, corporations, companies have been totally tangled up with the scientific enterprise and the military enterprise and the political mm. enterprise. Right? Boeing has been there from the beginning, making mm. the stuff that gets us into outer space. So it's not like a totally new introduction of corporations. There's a, sh- there's a shift that I'm trying to name um, that begins really to take place um, in 2011 when President Obama cancels the space shuttle program and he passes the responsibility for space exploration and space travel onto the private sector. And with that massive, the promise of massive government contracts, right? He's basically saying, you know what? The U.S. government should get out of the space business the same way we got out of it. We're not in the airline business, right? The private industry runs the airline business. Mm-hmm. Private industry runs a lot of the busing business and some of the train industry. We want that to happen to space. So I'm handing it over to the private sector. This is 2011. Budgetary priorities start getting reorganized. Space shuttle program is canceled. And at that point, Again, it's not like you you get the, the the birth of private space companies, but you get a proliferation of private space companies that are like, aha, now mm. we want those contracts. Sure. Problem is, of course, it's really difficult to assure investors a return on their investment mm. um, if we don't know what laws are governing, say, the moon and Mars and asteroids. Like, are you allowed to make money from them? Uh-huh. So a few years later, in 2015, the Obama administration passed with marvelous bipartisan support <laughs> um, what's called the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act, which declares that any resources, and I'm, I'm using quoted speech here, um, yeah. any resources recovered in outer space belong to the citizen who extracts those resources. Hmm. And a citizen, of course, can refer to a person, but really it refers to a corporation, right? Because corporations count as citizens under US law. So it's really with these two big things that suddenly like the gravitas of space starts shifting over to the corporate sector. And now um, it's not just that corporations are like running pizzas up to the International Space Station. Um, they're beginning instead to set the priorities for what happens in space. So that's what I what I mean. It's, a, it's a, again, a shifting of the the, the weight of things onto yes, the private sphere. Yes, Does great. that make sense? Yes. So when the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act was released in 2015, one of the executives of one of the aspirational um, space mining corporations said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is like our outer space version of the Homestead Act. 
Hmm. Um, and the Homestead Act, as you may know, is the 19th century act that opened the Western frontier to settlement by largely white European descended Americans. And so uh, those those white European descended Americans start pushing their way across the Western frontier, um, being given little parcels of land and um, the means to make use of them. And the idea, the sort of political ideal that was uh, guiding that westward expansion is this political ideal we refer to as manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea being that God has a plan for the United States of America as God's chosen nation. Mm -hmm. And that plan is to conquer the entire continent. How do we know this? Because so far, the United States of America has won every other battle that it has waged. Mm-hmm. So God's preference for the U.S., God's selection, God's election of the U.S., um, is not hidden, but rather manifest. Mm-hmm. Right? The destiny is manifest. Mm-hmm. That's how we know. Um, so this westward expansion, which you know clearly has political and economic motivations primarily, gets undergirded, gets um, justified with this lofty religious language of God wanting you to go out west. And that is the same kind of language that undergirded the exploration and eventual, coloniz- and eventual colonization of the so-called New World in the 15th and 16th century under what's called the doctrine of discovery, which is to say, if you are the first European land to get there, um, God wants you to have it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically yours. And God, of course, had make a God, God the Father through Christ had given authority to the Pope, who then had declared these particular lands for Spain or for Portugal, depending on which lands we're talking about, the New World or Africa. Um, so the, the point is that just as religious language, religious ideals. We're going to convert the heathen. We're going to spread the city mm-hmm. of God. We're going mm-hmm. to plant a new Jerusalem in a, in a land that's finally free. Just as um, specifically Christian language imagery um, justified the, the, the seizure of the lands of particularly the new world, the same language about it's being America's destiny, about God going with us when we go, mm. um, attends the effort for America to extend itself, say, vertically, if you can think of it that way. Um, It's not really vertical. It's just outward, (laughs) right? Um, Uh Into outer space. We get the same kind of language. Early in the 50s, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, who's a a former Nazi rocket scientist now in the U.S., starts arguing that it is uh, God's will that America colonize space, conquer space. Um, And as recently as... uh, 2019, um, Mike Pence told a newly reconstructed body of the space sector um, that wherever the U.S. went in outer space, God would be with us. Um, And in fact, Donald Trump referred to the space program as the U.S.'s manifest destiny. He used that term again. So it's Mm. not, you don't have to dig far to see it. It's right right there. Yeah. So then to build on that, how does... It's not just rhetoric, it seems like. So how does knowing biblical stories and having an understanding of Christianity in particular, since that's what's dominant in the U.S., help us to make sense of and understand some of the science behind this now corporate space race, as well as current scientific issues facing our planet, like the climate crisis, which sometimes gets used to justify more money going into this corporate space race? 
there are a lot of examples to which one could appeal here. Um, but one thread that runs really solidly through both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament yeah. is God's giving of land to God's chosen people. The mark of God's election in both the Hebrew Bible and, well, the, you know, the theological tradition that is in conversation with the New Testament. The mark is that God gives you a place to live and that that donation of the land that God directly gives God's chosen people justifies uh, the seizure of that land from the people who already live there. Right. So God in in Exodus, God tells Moses and then Joshua, you know, go into the land of Canaan, and there you're going to find the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the and I want you to get rid of them completely, destroy mm. them, so that we can build Jerusalem. And then you know the U.S. becomes understood as as God's new Jerusalem, right? Where where God is going to build a new kind of promised land. Um. So the 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 theology emerging from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, particularly as understood in imperial Christian traditions. There mm. are other Christian traditions. I'm mm. talking about yes. the kind that teams up with empire and the kind that teams up with large governments um, to become the, the sort of either de facto or, or, or actual religion of the state. The law becomes go take the land, destroy everything that's there and remake it um, ex nihilo, remake it out of nothing, just the way that mm. God made the universe out of nothing. So must you make the world of your new city or your new nation uh, out of nothing. Um, it seems to me that it is helpful to understand that the idea that a particular subset of humanity, well, first of all, a particular subset of creation, which is to say humanity, and then a particular subset of humanity, which is to say the people on this God's side, mm -hmm. um, are entitled to go and take land and use it toward their own you know, profit and edification um, is a specifically biblical idea. Um, and so that when we start using it in allegedly secular political contexts, we are, we are unwittingly re rehashing, as I, as mm -hmm. I guess I've said, mm -hmm. these old biblical stories about election, about conquest, about dominion. So then to shift just a bit, you give great space in your book to talking about some, uh, at times you call them charismatic characters like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. So why have billionaires such as Musk and Bezos become so invested and focused on going into space? What's in it for these excessively wealthy men? Okay. Let me talk first about the people who aren't Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. um, the people who run, in particular, sort of asteroid mining companies. Um, why are they so interested in space? Uh, I think it's because they're realizing that the gig is up for capitalist extraction on on this planet, ah, right? Okay. Um, there, we are nearing the end of the easily extractable, very expensive resources on Earth. Where are we going to get them? And it's not necessarily that we need them, but we need expensive stuff. What we risk is uh, economic stagnation. And as we know, if capital doesn't grow, mm -hmm. um, capital sort of dissolves. Um, and so in order to prop up the economic order, in order to keep it growing on a finite planet, we, we can't. We can't keep it growing forever on a finite planet. So we need more stuff. Um, if we're going to expand the economy infinitely. So why not try infinite space, right? Yeah, There's more stuff yeah. out there. 
There is literally golden asteroids. Um, there's stuff out there. Um, of course, it's really hard to bring precious metals back to Earth. It would be way too expensive. So what do you do? You mine stuff in space, and then you create a space economy that needs those metals. So it's it's the like the opening of a new economy. Um, what do people other than Bezos and Musk have invested in this? It's investment itself. It's the idea of mm. profit in a brand new sector. Musk and Bezos themselves, you know, the, a couple. There are a couple. I think of explanations. One that I think we can all agree on is they're total space nerds. They love space. They both love space. They grew up loving space. They watched all the space programs. They read all the space books. They wore all the space costumes. They, the space is awesome. <laughs> and both of them find themselves in a kind of uh, technological feedback loop with science fiction. Right. The ideas that they got from science fiction, they're now trying to actualize in Bezos's case, even taking Captain Kirk himself up into like above the atmosphere. Right. Um, So so they're they're like actualizing the stories that they grew up on. Right. Their myths aren't so much the myths of at least explicitly um, the myths of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Their myths are the myths of Tolkien and Asimov and Byrne and and the outer space guys. Um, So that's just one. They're just geeks and they love space. Of course, but there are a lot of geeks and they love space and they're not channeling billions of dollars into it. So like, where does that come from? And there I think you can either give a um, a cynical answer or you can give an earnest answer. The cynical answer is that the idea that for Musk, we're going to colonize Mars, we're going to occupy Mars, or that for Bezos, we're going to live in off-world rotating space pod colonies is a grand vision that allows them to enact their smaller visions um, and to tie it all up with a kind of humanitarian justification about saving the species or something like that, yeah. but to make a ton of money on the way. Is Musk actually going to get to Mars? It's really doubtful. But he can make a ton of money and actually do a ton of damage on Earth um, in order to get there. And he can get a lot of buy-in because um, the goal seems so lofty, right? The mm-hmm. preservation of the human species. Mm-hmm. That's the cynical answer. Um, the generous answer is they really think they're saving the species. Hmm. They really think they're saving the species. They really think um, Elon Musk is is convinced that an asteroid is going to come and destroy Earth at some point. Um, so we better have some humans living off planet. Hmm. Jeff Bezos says we're consuming too much energy. We can't go on like this anymore. Um, if we want to keep going on like this, we got to find another place to live. So how about rotating space pods? One can, again, call into question the genuineness of it, but that would be the, um, the most yeah. straightforward answer is yeah. that they think we're in danger and they want to save us. I don't know if you saw, but I um, mentioning, you know, Bezos taking Captain Kirk himself up, I saw where William Shatner wrote about the experience of finally going Mm -hmm. up into space. And he reported that he found it quite depressing and it produced grief for him that looking back, you know, going into space wasn't this enchanting experience he had also always imagined that rather he looked down at Earth and thought, you know, sort of what have we done to destroy so much of the planet and that it produced a profound sorrow for him rather than this lifelong dream come true. Yeah, it that interview, the, the couple of interviews that have emerged from that and the writing that he's done, um, 
I think are some of the most fascinating pieces of space writing I've ever seen. Hmm. Um, he is so excited to get up there and to experience the overview effect, which is to say, to look at the earth whole and entire and small and fragile and be like, oh, earth, I love you. Why do I fight with my fellow man? We should all just get along, right? Like, yeah. This is what he's expecting. That stuff that the poet Archibald McLeish wrote about um, after the Apollo 8 mission mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve. And he's all ready for it. He's totally ready for it, for space, the final frontier. And he zooms through the atmosphere and is faced with nothing short of existential terror. And he says, what I saw was this blanket of blue being suddenly ripped away. Hmm. And all that's out there is infinite nothingness, Hmm. just blank, empty nothingness. And then he starts sort of pointing and he points down toward where the earth would be and says, that's life and he points up out mm. to space and says and that's death like yeah. that's de- it's death out there y'all yeah. it's death out there and he's giving this he's trying to give articulate he's trying to articulate this right after he gets off the rocket he's totally shaken and he's like that's life that's death and um the message is not what jeff bezos wants for blue origin it is not like the that wow what a ride everybody should do it it was so fantastic he's like you guys it's freaking death out there yeah, right yeah um and so somebody interrupts it by like shaking a bottle of champagne and blowing a cork so it can fly all over the place um it is a message that almost nobody has wanted to hear that he uh was not in fact, ravished by the infinite possibilities of infinite space, um, but was rather led to say, you know what, we really have to do something about climate change because yes. this is it. This is yes. this is the only place to be. Yes. I think that's a good place then to ask you because your, your your book raises many concerns that you have about the corporate space race, but it doesn't just only stay with concerns. You you turn to different places to find possibilities to think about uh, our relationship to outer space as well as to our planet differently. And one of the places that you turn are various indigenous traditions uh, in the Americas, but not exclusively sort of around the globe, uh, to find different ways to think about our relationship to our planet and to space. I was wondering if you could give us some examples. What are some religious ideas that you have found that can help imagine a better vision for dealing with space and our planet than what's been put forth by these corporate and other entities? When it comes to the indigenous world, I find it instructive to listen carefully to what the Kanaka elders are saying around Mauna Kea when the University of Hawaii is trying to build a 14th telescope on the peak of Mauna Kea. Mm -hmm. And the elders are saying, this isn't just a rock. Mm -hmm. This isn't just an inanimate thing you can blast at will and you know pave over 14 different times and stick 14 different telescopes on um this is and it's at this point that like the um the metaphors get sort of beautifully crowded um this mountain is sacred this mountain is our ancestor this mountain is a sibling this mountain is the um, is a temple this mountain is a there are ways to think about even what the you know western philosophy thinks of as the least animate things which is to say rocks Mm -hmm. as having significance as having personhood um mars is said to have the largest the tallest mountain um in the solar system how might we relate to that mountain if we ever get out there Mm -hmm. right how Mm -hmm. might we relate to that mountain as important in its own right 
um, as, you know, even if you don't want to get onto the ancestor train or something like that, sure, it'd be sort of sure. weird to call a Martian mountain your own ancestor, sure. but um, uh, as significant in its own right, rather than just being a set of resources uh, for um, human growth and human profit. Um, I think also about the uh, Bawaka people of Northern Australia, um, who having learned um, particularly what Elon Musk is up to, which is to say, not so much through SpaceX, but through Starlink, which uh, launches 60 satellites every two weeks into orbit, mm, 60 mm. satellites every two weeks into low Earth orbit. Um, polluting the skies, making it difficult for astronomers to see the stars at all, messing up their photography, pouring light into the outback where it doesn't belong. That yeah. um, the Bawaka people have said, listen, we understand that from your perspective, you can do whatever you want in space because it's genuinely empty, right? Um, a lot of the justification for space as the final frontier will begin by saying, yeah, you know, it was a bad idea to colonize the new world. That was, whoops, <laughs> that was a mistake. Like there were actually people there. Uh, we didn't realize uh, that was offensive. And, um, and it was probably a bad idea to take all that land from indigenous Americans and displace and destroy them during the westward expansion. Uh, oops, there was actually stuff there. But when it comes to outer space, I mean, look at that. There's nothing there. Like, whom are you going to offend? Whom could you possibly offend? And the Bawaka are like, well, you'll offend us hmm. because for us, space isn't actually empty hmm. and it's not unoccupied. Our ancestors are out there. Hmm. And the way, when, whenever a, a person in the community dies, um, the person is sent through the Milky Way, with what they call the river of stars um, to a kind of um, eternal ancestry in, in the sky. And they're literally worried about clogging the pathways for the, the, mm -hmm. the, the transportation of souls. Yeah. And, and again, this isn't, I don't think it's important to listen to these stories for the sake of saying like, ah, oh, yes, my ancestors too are in the Milky Way. Like if your ancestors aren't in the Milky Way, don't worry. But how would you behave if you walked into somebody's house and the person said, please take off your shoes? You would mm -hmm. take off your shoes. Mm -hmm. Similarly, how might we behave respectfully in the wider cosmos without just assuming that all of it is ours and all of it is empty? Because as we've seen, that story never ends well, assuming mm -hmm. that there's nothing out there so we can just take it. These are some possibilities. I mean, other places you could go, um, I, I, another place I tend to go is to to science fiction, um, because these brave and beautiful authors, particularly um, in you know the more speculative end of science fiction, particularly recently, particularly from minoritized communities, um, have the power in this genre just to start from scratch and imagine stuff otherwise. And so N.K. Jemison has this city um, in a in a in a story that she calls the ones who stay and fight, and this city is based on the absurdly simple idea that all people are worthwhile and that all people deserve energetic and joyful care. Hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. And you just start from there and then you build up your city. Okay, so what does it mean? Well, it means that everybody has housing. Okay, so what does it mean? It means that everybody has connection. It means everybody has access to food and clean water. Right? And you build a totally different society from the one we have based on a principle that, you know, most people of goodwill would actually agree to, but like, how, how would you build a society? You could build a society totally differently if you begin from mm -hmm. that kind of value. Mm -hmm. um, another place that you can look for an alternative to the old Christian dominion language is Pope Francis, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. head of the Roman Catholic Church, <laughs> who in a series of encyclicals is saying, folks, capitalism is destroying the earth. 
It's literally just to cut it out, right? This relationship of instrumentalization that we have to the earth that enables us to um, extract maximum profit from it um, is destroying the earth. It's destroying the poor. It's eventually going to, to destroy the rich as well. We should, he says, follow the rule of St. Francis and view non-human others as siblings hmm. and view the earth itself as a precious gift of God. So like hmm. even right there in the heart of the Christian yes, tradition, yes. there are ways to think in ways other than imperial Christianity. Great. Thank you. So continuing on some of this line of thought, but shifting just a bit, um, one of your earlier books that you've written is on pantheism, and you return to pantheism at the end of this book to help think about the world and our place in it. So I was wondering if you could briefly explain what pantheism is and how you found it helpful when thinking about our planet and our relationship to outer space. Okay. So pantheism, most easily stated, most Um, straightforwardly stated, is the idea that what we mean by God is the material universe itself, that God Mm. is the world, that Mm. God is not other than the world, God is not out there somewhere, God is right here as, in the form of all of the processes that create everything that is, that sustain everything Mm. that is, and Mm -hmm. that destroy everything that is, and then makes it into something else, right? Um, Totally imminent uh, deity, right? Um, God and world as the same thing. For the most part, if you tell a philosopher or a theologian you're a pantheist, they'll either laugh at you or they'll run away from you or they'll (laughs) make fun of you or the rest. Um, But I've found it helpful, not because I think everybody should be pantheist, um, but because I think within numerous earth-affirming traditions, mm-hmm. you can even like square parts of it with kinds of Christianities, um, but within numerous earth-affirming traditions, the, the basic theological premise is that creation doesn't happen from like outside the world. It doesn't happen from outside the universe. It happens from within it, and it happens by means of the cooperation of a whole different, like inter, a whole bunch of different intra-creative forces, um, all sorts of agents working together to make trees, to let trees talk to trees by means of fungus, to get the leaves to fall and the you mm-hmm. know compost to 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 worm and the, and the flowers to rise and the right. I find it helpful to return to those lessons again not because i'm trying to convert anybody to pantheism um but because this newest turn in space exploration um is being again undergirded and justified by the most otherworldly kind of religious messianism right Mm -hmm. this world is not your home um, this world is coming to an end. Uh, you're going to have to follow me, a charismatic person, to another world somewhere else where you can finally be free, where you can finally use as much energy as you want, where you can b- finally bounce around in one-third gravity or something like that. Um, this this like otherworldly messianism, I think, is uh, is disastrous because it's predicated on the idea that, again, that this world is done for. Mm-hmm. So it takes our attention and our care away from this world. Um, so I, when I think about a space exploration that would work differently than this, the first thing it would need to do would be to acknowledge Earth as the locus of 
not just you know our history and not just but but the 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 essence of who we are and of everything that we hold to be important and yeah. everything we hold to be sacred um which again doesn't shut down anybody's space program um it just shuts down the idea that the reason we should go to space is because things are going to be better out there than they are on this dying planet so then for our last question, uh, I want to ask you, you say at the end of the book that you do think it's okay to explore outer space. Uh, so I'm wondering, given all of your thoughts on all of this, if NASA or a corporation invested in space exploration invited you to be a consultant, what would be some of your main recommendations? If NASA itself invited me to be a consultant, I mean, honestly, I would say, is there any way you can take the reins back from the private sector because mm. this is a disaster? Mm. But assuming that it's not, assuming that NASA would say, like, I know it's so bad, but space was never adequately funded until mm. private uh, capital entered the mix. Mm. Um, what I would want to ask NASA is, can you get clear about why you're doing this, about why you want to create a new economy in outer space. Mm -hmm. um, the best you can do if you scrutinize the NASA materials is that by means of the Artemis mission, which just launched, as you've probably seen the first stage of it just launched. Yeah. By means of the Artemis mission, we are going to deliver the infrastructure to the moon that we need to live on the moon. And you're like, but why do you need to live on the moon? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, build the infrastructure that we need to live on the moon. But why is it, right? In the in the 50s, we had a story. We were going to beat Russia. We were going to show the world that justice and truth and freedom were going to win out. We don't have that kind of grand political narrative anymore. Um, it's not clear what living on the moon is going to teach us about anything we know everything we need to it's not going to like bring brand new scientific discoveries so what is it is nasa really just going there so that it can open a new economic sector well then okay but then be clear about that being the or is there some other goal is there some you know maybe loftier goal it's and if there is can you make that the mission and allow the corporate sector to support that mission rather than doing what you're doing now which is to say endorsing the uh the economic uh uh, mm. line which is mm -hmm. which is now steering the whole steering the whole um the whole process um if a corporation were to ask me to be a consultant i really hope this doesn't happen i would say like you you all are the wrong ones to send in here um please step back but it, it, but mm. for a really concrete recommendation yeah. um let your workers unionize mm. let your workers unionize um because even if there's absolutely nothing on Mars, even if the moon, we don't care about the moon and we can frack it within an inch of its existence, even if we are entitled to exploit whatever we would like to in terms of asteroids, the moon, and Mars, um, the working conditions for the living beings who are, uh, who are performing these missions are going to be excruciating. Hmm. Um, and if you thought that, you know, coal mines in South Africa were bad, mm -hmm. um, imagine trying to mine an asteroid when, you know, Elon Musk is in charge of your access mm -hmm. to oxygen. Mm -hmm. So I worry a lot about those working conditions. Um, that would be it. Let your workers unionize. If they were to come to me together, because of course they're working together, and I had a message to give to both of them. Yeah. Um, the message for both of them would be, okay, we've heard that you've gotten the message about, you know, diversity and inclusion. You really want to put a woman on the moon. You really want to put black and brown astronauts into space. Uh, delightful. But rather than just including different kinds of people on the missions that you've already determined you're going to uh, execute, 
why not actually ask the people of the world, particularly the people of the world who figured out how to live on, with, through, and as their land without destroying it, mm. um, how we ought to behave in space mm-hmm. and then actually listen to them. Mm-hmm. Right? What do you do when you're visiting somebody else's land? How do you behave respectfully? Um, how do you travel with respect to a place where you're a visitor? Mm. Well, thank you for that. That's very helpful. I hope they do reach out to you. It would be it would be good for all of us. <laughs> well, thank you for this, and thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Mary Jane Rubenstein. You can find a review of her book, Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race, in The Revealer's upcoming December issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of Astrotopia at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. This is our last episode in 2022. We'll be back at the end of January with a new season of The Revealer Podcast. Our first episode in 2023 will be on race, religion, and the FBI. Until then, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.